Kristen, rev up your engine. Oh. Do you feel a need for speed? Oh, I knew you were going to say something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you're going to need it. You're going to need some high-octane fuel in your tank for this podcast because we have got a lot to cover. Oh, I, I am all greased up and ready to go. Oh, Kristen. Oh, okay. that's right. You always take it there, don't you? I, Look, here. <laughs> Here's, all right, if you think you're so fast, here's what we're going to talk about. Here's oh, what we're going to talk about. Oh, I'm furious now. Oh, wrong movie. Sorry. Wrong movie. We're going to talk about Need for Speed. We're going to talk about Veronica Mars. Uh, we're going to talk to a fan who funded, who helped fund the Veronica Mars film. We'll talk about Wes Anderson's latest, Grand Budapest Hotel. Then, just for the heck of it, we're going to answer a movie therapy. And then, as, as if that weren't enough, we will, of course, end with trivia. And singing. And so no, there's no singing, no. Kristen. I know every podcast I try to get singing in, but it won't happen this time. Get it in gear, Kristen. Not enough time. Oh, because here we go. Oh no, you didn't. I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday, and I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway, and this is Movie Date. All right. Your engine's all warmed up, I can't Kristen. believe you. You've got to stop this right now. You are just I, – I, I don't even know. what. I, you know why I need you to stop it? Because I don't have enough puns. You don't, you don't have enough motor auto, auto puns ready? Okay, well – I just well. want to say I can replace your wheels. I can jack that up. I don't know. <laughs> oh, jack it up, Kristen. Oh, I can totally jack it up. Give us <laughs> jack, jack up the plot synopsis for could, need to speed. I, I just kind of want to keep saying I have extra gas, but I don't think that's like the right thing to say. That's not good. No, that's bad. All right, so need for speed. People who've played the video game probably already know what this whole movie is about. It's about uh, driving cars fast. That's right. traffic, going the wrong direction against traffic, frequently going over 200 miles per hour. And in this particular film, the whole setup so that you can do all of that driving is sort of a flimsy plot. Uh, centering on Aaron Paul of Breaking Bad fame. He's playing kind of a down-on-his-luck auto mechanic, and one of his ways of getting ahead in life is to race cars for money. And uh, in this particular movie, he's going to do that in a very dangerous race with the assistance of a British woman who is kind of a loose cannon secretary who yeah. dresses in high heels and also likes to drive fast. Here's a clip. Oh, wait, wait. See, they're trying to trap us. here. just stripped onto the shoulder. No, no, I'm going for the Hummer. It's a pavement prowler. Pavement what? It's a show car with a big lift kit. Makes up for his inferiority complex. You are crazy! Well, Kristen, are you a Breaking Bad fan? Do you like Aaron Paul? I don't like Breaking Bad. And I feel like now all of our listeners are going to turn off the podcast and never listen to us again. (laughs) So, there, so what you're saying is there's basically very little for you in this film. If you're not a, if you're not a car racing fan and you're not an Aaron Paul fan, what, what's gonna what's gonna what's gonna please you about this film? I have no idea. Hmm. And bad date the end. No, actually, oh. let's hear what you have to say, Rafer. Uh, well, you know, I guess I'm the same way. I'm not a big Aaron Paul fan and I'm not a big car racing fan, but I do love a car flick. My God, I love a car movie. Who doesn't? I know you like the last Fast and Furious. Yes, I did. I like the Fast and Furious movies. Um, and, you know, and I like all the old classics. Bullet, which makes a brief appearance here in this movie. All the kids go to a drive-in and what are they playing except Bullet? I don't know any teenager alive who's seen Bullet, but <laughs> there it is. Um, and there are also a lot of... 
uh, references to old car movies in this film. Um, there's a stunt that's uh, taken directly from American Graffiti uh, that involves a cop car. Unless there's some sort of Hal Needham style stunts in this. Hal Needham's the guy who did all the good smoking the bandit movies. Uh, this I thought was though for even for a car movie really dopey and really slow. It takes also, forever to get going, right? I also think it was really slow. I totally agree with you on that. And I'm not normally this person who wags the finger, but this was so socially irresponsible. No, you're totally the right. The whole time I was watching it, I thought, I have turned into a grumpy old lady because you are driving the wrong way against traffic at right. 200 miles per hour. Cars are crashing all around you and behind you. You and your buddies are giving each other high fives and laughing. Right. I could not figure out how they could feel okay with women and children and all sorts of innocent people dying around them and their cars right. going up in flames while this is happening. And the movie really the movie really takes great pains to show it to you as well. It's not as though this stuff is incidental. It's really important to the movie to show that our hero has essentially clipped a bicyclist who's on the side of the road or that they are playing kind of a, a, a dodge chicken game with a school bus full of children. And I, I just kept thinking like – I we can suspend disbelief on some of this stuff in your average car racing movies and the Fast and the Furious movies they're always speeding down pedestrian streets but they magically make it look as though no one's really going to get hurt in this movie they seem to go out of their way to say look we could kill a kid and I kind of feel and like we just did I don't know why that's <laughs> supposed to be cool I don't quite get that but I mean aside from that the whole movie is just it's slow and it doesn't make any sense it's not a lot of fun and Aaron Paul although I know people love him on, on Breaking Bad never really pulls me in necessarily. No, he's you know? just brooding. He's just kind of brooding. He's and also just kind of loud whispering. And kind of a small guy too on screen. It doesn't look necessarily that menacing, I have <laughs> now, to say. Now, now, now. Are you saying, being a size king? No, Come I'm on just saying. You're gonna, not you know, always just a... Okay. You're, we're talking about a movie star, what a movie star is supposed to look like. He's and compact and fast. Compact and fast. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, like a souped up VW bug. Uh, okay, so bad date, you say? I think we both agree. This is a pretty bad date. Yeah, yeah, pr- pretty not bad into it. Not getting in the back seat with that one. No. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to move on next to Veronica Mars. This is a long-awaited film, uh, a couple years in the making, funded by fans. When the when the original show on the CW back in the two thousands was canceled uh, in in right after the third season, Rob Thomas, the show's creator, left it open. He didn't want to end the storyline and wrap it up because he he so wanted to somehow continue the Veronica Mars story. It's the story of a teenage sleuth in Neptune, California. She's fighting corruption with her private eye dad and they sort of take on the take on the big guys and, and they also solve a lot of teen drama along the way. But the show ended. Uh, fans were upset. Uh, it was a huge outcry. Later on, they did a Kickstarter campaign, uh, funded the film to the tune of $5.7 million, and with Rob Thomas behind the camera and writing, got the film made. So we'll review that movie uh, in a minute. But first, we're going to talk to a fan who contributed her own money to the funding of this film. So we're being joined now by Cindy Ao. She's a backer of the Kickstarter campaign for the new Veronica Mars movie. Cindy, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Cindy, this is an interesting situation. A lot of fans fall in love with characters on TV shows. A lot of TV shows are canceled over the years, but not a lot of these fans end up kicking in their own money to bring these characters and shows back to life. 
how did you do this? Why did you decide to be one of the big backers for this Kickstarter campaign? So when Veronica Mars was canceled, like, you know, all the fans out there, it was a huge bummer because this was an amazing television show with an incredible storyline that was kind of left a little open-ended. And so when, when the Kickstarter project happened, there was this amazing opportunity to actually literally come together with all the fans and see if we could make this thing happen. And so it was inspiring and it was also kind of one of those moments that you never think you'll actually get to have. Um, so it was definitely a no-brainer. I jumped in immediately. And, and I have to ask the, uh, the, the rude question, how much did you contribute? <laughs> um, let's just say I contributed enough to uh, join uh, the set one day and be an extra in the film. Oh, all right. Wow. So, I, so I've, even though I'm not seeing you now, I, I perhaps have seen you since I've seen the film. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I actually recently saw the film, um, and you know, as, as an extra in a, in a background scene, there's no guarantee that you'll actually get any uh, screen time, but I did see myself, and it was a crazy moment. Um, I definitely freaked out a bit. <laughs> <laughs> can, can, you, can you give us a hint of what scene that was so that we can all look for you? <laughs> I've been trying not to let people know what scene. Just so I don't want to distract people from the movie. Let's just say that uh, it's, it's a scene that involves some dancing. So Nice. Okay. I bet you're a great dancer. <laughs> so how did you like the movie? Um, I loved it. <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of folks have been asking me this, especially since uh, they found out that I'd seen it. And, you know, as, again, a huge fan, I believe my opinion is probably not quite the same as just a regular viewer. Um, but to me, it hit all the right notes uh, and all the notes that made me love the show to begin with. Um, so it was, it was kind of perfect. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great talking with you, a funder of the new Veronica Mars movie. Thank you guys again for for inviting me. This is great. So we heard from a fan there about Veronica Mars. So so great of her to join us. Well, now you're going to hear from a non-fan, and that's me. (laughs) Uh, Which is not to say that I dislike... The Veronica Mars series. It was just never necessarily on my radar, although I had friends who were who were big fans. But, uh, you know, I went into this movie with no real expectations. Here's the plot. Uh, Veronica, uh, played by Kristen Bell, has returned to little Neptune, California, reluctantly, uh, to help out her ex-boyfriend, uh, Logan, played by Jason Doring. He is being framed, she thinks, for the murder of his pop star girlfriend, Bonnie DeVille. She's been found electrocuted. That ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just let me finish for a minute. She's been electrocuted in a bathtub. The whole town seems to think he did it. She's going to come back and solve the crime. For good, for goodness sake, Kristen. All right, here's a clip. In a lesser-known epic poem, Dante's Inferno 2, Hell Freezes Over, ten years after escaping the nine circles, Dante returns. You know, for old time's sake. Have a couple shots, catch up with the gang. Name? Veronica Mars. No way. You look so different. I barely recognize you. Okay. okay. Like you, Rafer. <laughs> I, I never was a fan of the show. Again, not because I didn't like it, because yeah. I never watched it. Right. And, um, and unlike you, I didn't see the movie, so I'm really relying on you to tell me how good this movie is for a non-fan. Well, here's the thing. This movie is literally by and for the fans. I mean, it's the definition of such a thing. It's 90 minutes of in-jokes and references that you don't know and that aren't going to mean anything to you. And even though I think Rob Thomas tries to explain it to you, 
that's not gonna that's not gonna give you that warm fuzzy you know warming the cockles of your heart feeling that you would get if you were a longtime Veronica Mars nut. So mm. you know, for most of America, I'm gonna say, yeah, not a great date. Mm, it sounds like going back to somebody else's high school reunion. That's kind of that's kind of what it's like. That's mm. a, that's a, that's a very good analogy. Yeah, not a great date. It sounds like, but. What about the Grand Budapest Hotel? Yes, indeed. Do you pronounce the S as a sh when you say Grand Budapest? I kind of do tend to, which I so know do is a... I. Do I. I tend to, too. Does yeah. that make us pretentious? Maybe. I don't know. We both spent time in Budapest. We have. And it's beautiful. What it's, a beautiful town. I totally agree. One of the prettiest on earth. Well, uh, so this is Wes Anderson's latest film with a star-studded cast. Kristen, do you want to give us a brief rundown? Yeah, as always, there are all the Wes Anderson stars we love. There's Bill Murray. There's Tilda Swinton. This time there's also Jude Law. Um, But our real central characters are Mr. Gustav, played by Ray Fiennes, who is the concierge of a very high-end hotel, the Grand Budapest Hotel. And the young lobby boy Zero, played by Tony Revolori, who uh, Mr. Gustav takes under his wing, teaches him all the ins and outs of being a fantastic concierge, and then in addition to mentoring him, also tries to guide him with some certain principles about life, about poetry, about observing the world in a certain way, about dealing with women. But then along the way in their journey, you see that he, Mr. Gustav, also gets taken care of in some ways by Zero, and in some ways Zero ends up being a hero for him. I did not mean to Aha, rhyme like that. Hey. Oh, all right. Here's a clip. Experience. Hotel Kinski, kitchen boy, six months. Hotel Berlitz, mop and broom boy, three months. Before that, I was a skillet scrubber. Experience in the zero. Education. I studied reading and spelling. I started my primary school. I almost finished. Education, zero. Family. Zero. Now, I think you and I are both Wes Anderson fans, yes? Oh, yes. We both think he's adorable, and he just... I mean, everything's so pretty in his world. Yes. And I also think that he does such a great job of just speaking to our generation of movie viewers. I don't know if people over 60 or under... 20 love him in the same way that we do in our generation. Yeah, I agree. Uh, do you remember reading that New York Times article where Wes Anderson got to show his film to Pauline Kael? And uh, I think it was either Rushmore or Tenenbaums. I cannot remember which one. And this was a big moment for him because, you know, he'd grown up um, really idolizing Pauline Kael and uh, the famous movie critic for The New Yorker. And uh, when they walked out, she said, I'm not really sure what you've got there, Wes. Oh. And that was kind of it. Um, and, I, you know, so I think you're right. I, I do think that Wes Anderson's films, even though he's borrowing, uh, uh, majorly borrowing from a lot of the filmmakers of Pauline Kael's generation, specifically from the 60s, I think, um, mm-hmm. specifically Hal Ashby seems to be his one main influence, I think. It's right. It's true that that I think he speaks to a younger generation somehow. Even those movies are all about nostalgia for an era that none of us have actually lived through. It's yeah. interesting. I, and I really think that's his magic is yeah. he, he does – yeah, you put it in exactly the words that I always put it in. He makes <laughs> you feel nostalgic for a place you've never been and a time you've never lived in. Yeah. And did you like this one? You know, I have to say I liked it a lot more than some other recent ones of his. Because Me too. Uh, the last couple movies of his, while always aesthetically pleasing and also just completely adorable, I just felt like, oh, we're watching him do his tricks again. Yeah. Here's his little zoom in. Here's his little zoom up. Here are a bunch of cute items sitting on a kitchen table. Right. Uh, here, the whip pan reaction shots, the very, yeah. very formally composed framing Going he through a hallway, down a you know, corridor into yeah. it. Yeah. But this time around, I really felt there was a certain heart in it. There's something about that relationship between Mr. Gustav and Zero 
that is so touching, even yeah. as it's completely ridiculous. And the ridiculousness almost because it's so comically not realistic. Right. In a way, it, it just allows all the real feelings to kind of seep out. And you don't have to explain those feelings. They're all there somewhere. And yeah. I really enjoyed this one. I, I thought it had some real heart to it. Yeah, I agree. And I thought that uh, Ray Fiennes was terrific as Monsieur Gustave. Oh, yeah. He's, he's, and it, you don't get to see Ray Fiennes do comedy very often. It's no, sort of, it's kind so of the last rare. thing you associate with him as an actor. But he's, he's really good. He's funny. And he's got that – there's something tragicomic about him that I really liked. So I, I really liked it. Uh, I was not a big fan of Moonrise Kingdom. Neither was I, I. And neither were you. Yeah. And I think, but I think the cutesiness and the kind of – there was a certain condescending attitude that I felt in Moonrise Kingdom. That's not here. I think it's the story of a really tender – unlikely friendship and you you really feel it and that's what i liked about it oh likewise really good date really good date. oh yes high five we totally right. agree we totally agree. good date <laughs> you and your fake high fives <laughs> that Kristen. was not fake i don't fake anything on this podcast okay. all right hey <laughs> take, take us to the couch Kristen, for movie therapy why don't you all right so let's play this call that we got Hi, Reefer and Kristen. This is Kristen from Dubuque, Iowa. I'm a professor of history, and I use films with my students as historical artifacts, so I have a movie therapy question for you. For the Great Depression era, I used Gold Diggers of 1933, and I find it captures the period really well, and the students like it. Can you recommend a film for each of the following decades of the 20th century that you think provides a good snapshot of the period and is still fun for modern audiences of 18 to 22-year-olds. Love the show. Thanks. Bye. Kristen, thank you so much for calling with that great trivia question. Also, you have a great name. Yeah, great name. Great name. (laughs) Uh, All right. That's a tall order, but no order is too tall for doctors Meinzer and Guzman. And I, I I love the scale of this question. I every, do too. Every decade, wow! You put so much faith in us. I know, I know. And we are going to we are going to make good on your on your faith. All right, we'll start with the 1940s, the quintessential movie of each decade. We're going to go through. We'll start with the 1940s. And we have to point out we worked really hard on trying to reach agreement on most of these decades. We didn't always. So. There will be a little bit of disagreement that we'll be bringing up. But 1940s, we agreed. We did agree, and we chose Double Indemnity, uh, the Billy Wilder masterpiece with Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. It's a film noir about a man who meets a married woman. The two of them conspire to kill her husband. Uh, Fred McMurray is an insurance salesman. Uh, Edward G. Robinson, in an unusual turn, plays uh, McMurray's friend and confidant at the insurance firm. Here's a clip. There's a speed limit in this state, Mr. Neff. 45 miles an hour. How fast was I going, officer? I'd say around 90. Suppose you get down off your motorcycle and give me a ticket. Suppose I let you off with a warning this time. Suppose it doesn't take. Suppose I have to whack you over the knuckles. Now, what you can't see in the clip are Barbara Stanwyck's awesome bangs. Yes. Everybody <laughs> needs to see this movie, if only for her bangs. But what it says about the 1940s is so interesting to me about the roles of gender and, you know, in its own way, kind of social politics of the time. Yeah, I think it's, I think, it, as you said, it's not, not only does it look quintessentially 1940s, but I think it also shows a lot to me about the American psyche and the American male. Um, this, he, for, there's something so average American about Fred McMurray and also about how he's just 
this side of committing a horrible, horrible crime. There's something about, you know, the, the idea that here we all are walking down the streets of this bright, shining city called America, and yet we're just that close to doing something totally immoral and horrible. And I, I really like that about the movie. Love that. So let's talk about the 1950s, which we split on. We don't agree yes. on. So 1950s, you said rubble without a cause. I did indeed. I know that this film, uh, some people think this film is not dated that well. I'm uh, one of them. You're one of them. <laughs> the film is, uh, it's the classic teen film, you know, James Dean playing a guy who just arrives to a new school. He's kind of an outcast. He's trying to fit in. His home life's not that great. I just think that every teen cliche that you can imagine is here but this is where they all came from. This was the movie that introduced us to the teenager, essentially, in a, in a, in a deep and real way. Here's a clip. You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! Now, it's not like I disagree with you about this being an important movie. I do think that, especially post-World War II, the, the invention of the American teenager was a phenomenon, just a mind-blowing marketing Yes. social, pop culture in all sorts of ways, a whole new thing. It was a whole new game. True. So that is important, but I actually think that 1950s, we should also be talking about race. Yeah, and good point. So the movie I picked out was Imitation of Life. And Imitation of Life, you're dealing with race and with femininity and womanhood in a really particular way and women's roles in society and also people who are black and you know it and people who are black and hiding it. And yes. I just think that says so much about that era in American history and how awful it is in some ways to be black during that time in America. That's a good point. It's also a, a beautiful-looking film. Yeah, it's gorgeous it's just looking. fantastic. Really good. What All about right. the 1960s here? For the 1960s, um, we chose to start off with, for sure, The Graduate. Uh, this is Mike Nichols' movie uh, based on the Charles Webb novel. Dustin Hoffman plays Benjamin Braddock. He's home from college. He's back in the uh, back in the suburbs with his friends, his family, and uh, Anne Bancroft plays the woman who, if you haven't seen the movie, uh, tries to seduce him. Here's a clip. Mrs. Robinson, I can't do this. You what? This is all terribly wrong. Do you find me undesirable? Oh no, Mrs. Robinson. I think I think you're the most attractive of all my parents' friends. I mean that. I find you desirable, but I. For God's sake, can you imagine my parents? Can you imagine what they would say if they just saw us here in this room right now? Ooh, that Mrs. Robinson. Ooh. Now, Kristen, too, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> you, you, were, you were really pushing for this film. How come? Yeah, I really think that this says something about uh, the idea of conformity and nonconformity in the 1960s. Corporations, plastics. The plastics. Idea, plastics. The idea of doing the responsible thing, the idea of being that upstanding citizen, of being that married person and following through on what your role has been established to be ever since uh, World War II. You are young, you get married, you raise a family, you move to the suburbs. And that versus these internal yearnings for other things. Yeah. And I really think that this movie shows that. But you chose a completely different movie that I've never even seen. Just as a backup, I think, I think The Graduate shows you why the 60s happened. And I think if you want a movie that shows you uh, what the 60s looked like, I would choose Petulia by Richard Lester. I think this movie is a masterpiece, uh, very underrated, uh, not widely seen. Uh, Julie Christie and George C. George C. Scott, she plays sort of a kind of a fake rich hippie, but, you know, a free spirit, definitely. 
George C. Scott is on the establishment side. He's a doctor, but he's dissatisfied with the status quo. And they have this kind of almost romance. I think it's a really unsparing look at both sides of America in the 60s. Um, and I just think it's it's beautiful, it's brutal, and it's heart-wrenching. And I love the movie. Wow. You make me really want to see it. You, I think everyone should see that movie. Pauline Kael, since we're speaking about her a lot, uh, hated it. But I think it's fantastic. You're making me not like Pauline Kael anymore. <laughs> I'll give you a secret. I'm not a big Pauline Kael fan. Ooh, interesting. Oh, oh, oh. Ooh. All, all right. right. Let's talk about 1970s. Yes. Uh, you know, I was uh, thinking of all these different movies from the 1970s. I was thinking of you know, the, the Parallax View, The President's Analyst. I had all, the, you know, all these different movies, uh, President's Men. Kristen, I think you came up with the best uh, prescription here. I really think that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is the quintessential 70s film. I mean, yeah, I have, have to agree. You have Jack Nicholson, who is institutionalized, and that institution that he's in is really just a stand-in for society at this time about what's normal, what's madness. Are you being treated as an individual? Do you have to fit in? Are you allowed to have rage over the things that are wrong in the world? And I really think that this does a great job of showing all of that. Let's hear a clip. Well, then stay all wet, Harding, huh? Because I'm going downtown and watch the World Series anyway. Anybody want to come with me? I do, Mac. Anybody else? Where? Any bar downtown. Mac, 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 you can't, 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 can't get out of here. Anybody want to bet? I think, I think what's great about this movie is uh, better than all the movies that I was thinking of. Um, it captures that, that downbeat air of the 70s, that sense of, of, of anger but hopelessness and futility that really permeated the 1970s in the hangover of the 1960s. And uh, it really – I mean you couldn't ask for better performances from Jack Nicholson, from Louise Fletcher. Everyone oh, Louise Fletcher is amazing in this. Brad Dourif, I mean, as, uh, as Billy Bibbitt. It's, it's, it's an amazing film. Uh, and you're right, Kristen. That, that is the quintessential 70s film. Well, I'm glad we agree on that. What about the 80s, though? We, got, we agreed on the 80s, too, actually. We did agree on the 80s. I mean, I think the 80s is interesting. It's, it was the go-go economy. Uh, so in some ways, you could choose a movie like Wall Street. Uh, you know, it was, it was a, a, great, a great era for teen films, so you could have chosen Breakfast Club. Um, but, of course, it was also the Cold War. There were nuclear fears. There were a lot of communist fears. And I think to capture that uh, in one film, probably the best you could do is Red Dawn, in which a small town finds itself under siege by uh, foreign invaders and the teens have to form a militia and fight back. Here's a clip. First wave of the attack came in disguised as commercial charter flights, same way they did in Afghanistan in 80. They coordinated with selective nuke strikes and the missiles were a hell of a lot more accurate than we thought. They took out the silos here in the Dakotas, key points of communication. This also has a lot of your quintessential 80s movie stars in it. We, <laughs> right. we have Jennifer Grey. We have Patrick Swayze. We have Leah Thompson. We have all sorts of stars that we just love from this time and from this place doing what everybody in America kind of wants to do, fight the enemy. We're all living in fear. Oh, those Russians. That's and, right. That's right. And uh, and I loved this movie as a kid. It's a, it's a great movie. I think a lot of people at the time found it to be a little ridiculous, a little over the top. I think it actually stands up as a, as a really serious war film, possibly an anti-war film if that's if it's possible to make an anti-war film. Uh, you always wind up glorifying war in some way. But I think – it's a it the the movie really it's got some teeth and it's got some guts and I I think it's a, just a really amazing film. Don't see that don't see that crappy remake by the way. That oh they did. no! Don't, 
don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Even if Tom Cruise's son is in it, not worth it. <laughs> not right. I worth forgot it. about that. Okay, 1990s. We also agreed. Yes. The quintessential movie of the 1990s. Is it? Is it Pulp Fiction? No. No, it is not. It, it is not. No, it's Fight Club by David Fincher. This was Edward Norton playing a guy who's a dissatisfied member of society. He's looking for something that's going to give him that sense of being alive. He's trapped in corporate America. He can't quite feel that sense of being a a real, living, breathing human being, and he discovers it in violence. Here's a clip. What do you want me to do? You just want me to hit you. Come on. Give me this one favor. Why? Why? I don't know why. I don't know. Never been in a fight. You? No, but that's a good thing. No, it is not. How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Now, this story does not hide at all what it's criticizing. They talk about Ikea. They talk about big box stores. Yes. <laughs> they talk about trampled on masculinity. They talk about the veal fattening pen of our cubicle world. And this is just – it's very late 90s. Yeah. It, it's just before we all are really, really, really going to be trapped in our desks because of social media, because of all those things. Right. Um, so it's right before that. But, oh, my gosh, does it capture – the frustration and the sense of being penned in and so fun. Yeah, Brad well, Pitt's yes. fantastic Brad, in this. Right. Really, I'm not sure Brad Pitt has ever been better oh, than he was in Fight Club. That's great. And Helena Bonham Carter. That's right. Great soundtrack. Some of the Pixies are in there. Pixies, yeah. classic, classic, classic Pixies moment in, in Fight Club. Yeah, I really think it was the distillation of about 20 years of alternative culture right into one film. So there you go. There's your prescription. Thank you so much, Kristen. And anybody else who has a movie therapy question out there, just give us a call on our hotline. Five seven one seven movies, and you can also use that hotline to call us with your trivia answers. So let's talk about last week's trivia question. That's right. Uh, last week's trivia question: We were talking about uh, Mr. Peabody and Sherman, and uh, we were theorizing. We were pretty sure that he's a beagle, so we decided to ask this question in the movie Cats and Dogs. What actor? played the voice of Lou the Beagle. We gave you this clip. I think that if I'm going to be a secret agent, I should have a better name. I was thinking Toto Annihilation. And we got this answer. Hey, Kristen, I'm It's Minnie from New York. The trivia question this week. Um, I'm not 100% sure about this. But I think it sounds like Toby McGuire's for Lou the Beagle. But uh, I had another thing. I was uh, listening to the podcast and... I love that the assessment for Mr. Peabody is a beagle because Michael and I, we have five beagles. I'm just saying, bye. Great job, Minnie. From Minnie. Our, our regular caller, Minnie. <laughs> we love it when you call Minnie, and we love that you actually have beagles. Send That's us, right. <laughs> send us a picture. Put those on our Facebook page so we can see how cute your dogs are. Totally. <laughs> All right. Kristen, what is this week's trivia? So, in honor of the Grand Budapest Hotel... We're thinking about movies that take place in hotels. There are a lot of them. But we're going to play a clip and have you identify what hotel movie that is. So here's the clip. Stay with me. Please. Don't hurt me. I'm not going to hurt you. Stay away from me. Wendy. Stay away. Darling. Light of my life. I'm not going to hurt you. That's a gimme. Is it? Bonus points if you know the oh, name of the hotel, on. too. Oh. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely give us the name of the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Call us at 5717movies. Or you could log on to our website at facebook.com slash moviedatepodcast. There's a world where I can go and tell my secrets.